welcome to Talent Savvy, the podcast that inspires you on all things talent from the Netherlands. My name is Bas van der Hatert. From Canada, this is Marlies Farrell. And from California, via London, I'm Kelly Robinson. So, welcome all of you. Kelly, I know that we were going to start today with a tip around LinkedIn based on a report that you had recently reviewed. Yeah, actually, that's a really good way to start, in fact. So there's a lot, of, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make this available in the uh, show download or in the notes. Uh, there's a bunch of pages, I think it's about 10 pages in this report. But uh, I was just going to pick the first three tips just very quickly for people that are, you know, trying to get the maximum out of their LinkedIn connections and their profile. So the first three tips on this report were, number one, change your headline. So at the very beginning, don't just put your job title but put in a description of, of what you do and maybe who you do it for. You're allowed 220 characters in that. So again, the first tip is change your headline. The second one is update the URL. By default, it's going to give you a URL with a dash and a bunch of numbers. Make that more friendly. So maybe make that, you know, LinkedIn forward slash your name or, you know, what you do. And then the third thing is just change the banner. That default LinkedIn background could be changed and, and jazzed up a little bit. So the first three tips are headline, update the URL and change your banner. Oh, it was worth sharing with people. Absolutely. And I know, Bath, that you had kind of a quirky news item that you wanted to discuss. Well, I've actually got two really interesting firing cases from the Netherlands. And as our international listeners might know, it's not as easy to just fire somebody in this country. We have very strict labor laws and you have to have actual really good cause. The first one was a really interesting one when somebody got a massive praise at an all-hands event at a, a small to medium-sized company. He'd been there for 27 years and they were applauding him for the amazing jobs he'd done. And he figured out, let's do something funny. Let's roast this company. And he came up with all kinds of things and eventually ended up calling some of the management team directors things he should not have, especially when he made remarks about the female's director, sexual appetites, and he got fired on the spot, to which the judge said he was allowed to be fired, but they did owe him pretty decent severance because severance pay is calculated on how long you've been working there. It was a decent amount, but he still got fired. And the other one was, interestingly enough, one where somebody got fired at sort of a sick leave. We have this system in the Netherlands where if you're sick, a company physician or a physician linked to your company is allowed to see how sick are you, should you be coming back to work, et cetera, et cetera. And this man had a big argument with the company physician, which basically, and he recorded it, and the transcript read like the most insane anti-human thing you've ever read, where the physician was like, the man literally asked, what's your name? Because I thought I had a meeting with X. And the man said, I'm the one asking the questions here. Yeah, but I just want to know why you are here and not my normal physician, which I've been talking to for the past couple of months. I told you I'm the one who answer, who asks a question. Yeah, but I don't even know how to call you if you won't tell me your name. My name is not relevant. And there was a lot of yelling over and the guy just left and was then fired because he refused to come back to the company in a normal way. And the judge completely agreed with the man who was fired and he was reinstated and the, the company physician was reprimanded. So two quirky getting fired uh, stories about really weird behaviors, if you read him, at least for Dutch purposes. So. On the first one, isn't that what used to be called the Christmas party, office 
festive party if we're going to be uh, correct and i know you're giggling because we've all been to them right i've all experienced that isn't that what used to happen right people had a couple of drinks loosened up a little bit and then the company roasting started and somebody always took it too far always took it too far and there was always somebody that didn't appear in january as a result of it well my experiences anyway you're probably uk experiences and since we actually once had a christmas party together in the uk once cal i completely understand that's your usual forte but to be quite honest Roasting is actually very uncommon in the Netherlands. We only very recently actually got the thing called the roast, a Dutch roast on comedy channels. So no, it's it's not that common here. And So no Saturday Night Live for you where they just do it generally? No? No, no. Okay. We heard about that American thing called the roast <laughs> uh, up till I think four or five years ago. So Let's dive into what we're usually talking about, which is actual things in talent acquisition and learning from other organizations who are doing things really well or really badly. And in this case, yesterday I was at a big event here in the Netherlands and the Worth N Awards, which is next to my awards, the biggest awards in the industry here in the Netherlands were handed out. And one of the companies that won one of those awards is a name you both are probably are very familiar with. It's called Ship Hall, our national airport. And as you might know, um, last year we had a massive, massive problem with security staff, luggage handlers, and basically all kinds of airport employees. And even though these people were not employed by the airport itself, everybody was talking about the labor problems at Ship Hall. Flights were being delayed. I think 20% of the flights had to be canceled, et cetera, et cetera. People couldn't go on holiday. People couldn't come back. Sometimes it took luggage forever to get back to you. Ship Hall was losing their employer brand and actually their entire brand, even though it wasn't their staff shortages. And they won the award this year for completely fixing the staffing shortages. And they basically did it by doing what everybody should be doing, treating candidates decently and having an advertising strategy, which just is based on data and a bit of psychology. Yeah, let's dig into that first one a little bit um, around treating candidates with respect. I know that you said that they did something pretty interesting, which a lot of recruiters listening can do themselves. How quickly did they get back to candidates, Beth? Basically, their target was within a day. They just scaled up via an RPO and they simply made a deal with the RPO. We will get in touch with the candidates after they applied within a day, do a first pre-screen and see if they can move on. I think that's amazing because sometimes when we hear about these companies that win awards, they're doing things that are really, really innovative. And I'm not trying to take away from what Skibble did, but this is something any recruiter can do who's listening today is just really get very quick on the response of their applicants. Maybe they'll need the staffing levels to do it, but I think there's a great lesson here. Well, actually, I know uh, another healthcare company uh, had basically the same, that's two years ago, had the same thing. They were just like, listen, it's by definition a priority to get back to everybody within 24 hours. Now, they didn't have the hiring volumes that Shiphole has because hiring nurses, especially as a medium-sized healthcare company somewhere in rural the Netherlands. But they simply, how they managed it, because Shiphole had 
massive amounts of people coming in. So needed to really scale up their their talent acquisition. And that's why they used an RPO to outsource it to. The healthcare company simply said, every recruiter is calling applied candidates and blocks the block between 11 and 12 in the morning and between three and four. And by definition, we're then going to be calling candidates. And it was just one person with two hours a day blocking in, in their agenda. Nothing else was allowed to happen those two hours calling candidates and they managed to call everybody back within 24 hours as well. It's funny, isn't it? If you listen to candidate feedback on on looking for a job any time in the last 10 years, if not longer, what's one of the first things they'll say is, I apply for a job I didn't hear back. So one of the fundamentals here is, you know what, let's actually address that issue head on. Let's make sure everyone applies, hears back and hears back in appropriate time you know because some cut some candidates get a phone call seven days later and they're like well sorry what job which job <laughs> i've applied for another 50 since then i've got no idea which this job is which is leading to employer branded but it is, is a shame that more people are still not approaching this and I, I know it's often resource constrained you can't call everybody but today with technology you think there'd be some more of a concerted effort by most companies to provide that level of service as a minimum if somebody's expressing an interest in in your business in your company at least give them the common courtesy and i think the word used them also was respect at least give them the, the respect of you owe them some communication and, and i'm not talking about a canned email because that's just i think i don't know what do you think what do you think on, on canned emails right you apply you get a standard template we all know it's a template Michael, uh, what do you mean with canned emails because i'm unfamiliar with that term as a non-native speaker uh, yeah, good point, actually. Um, so for me, uh, think of a templated email. Perhaps that's a better description. You know when you're, you know when you apply for a job and you immediately get a sort of a templated response from the ATS or from some system. You know, we really appreciate you applying for the job. Blah blah blah. You know, different messages. Well, my opinion is I don't think people applying for a job consider that as a a contact or being respectful. It's just it's just a vanilla thing that happens. Um, but w- what do you think about it? Um, yeah, you mean basically you mean the auto reply? Uh, that's that's how we yeah yeah auto reply. Yeah, no, that's how yeah, we okay. subscribe. Well, it's a necessary thing because you don't appreciate it, but you do miss it if it's gone. I I literally for my event, I recently unfortunately made a mistake in my form, and I got like a ton of emails saying to people, "Did my subscription come true? Did you get that I wanted to attend uh, your event?" So you miss it when it's not there. And I will tell you that from a candidate experience perspective, it's probably the most overlooked thing where it is a candidate touch point. You can make a difference there. It's just we don't use it. Yeah, I think the canned emails, they count if they're used effectively or templated emails. For example, depending on the volume of applicants you're getting, sometimes that type of rejection is necessary at the very early stages because you just can't get to all the applicants depending on the brand you represent. But I think they should be used sparingly. Yeah, but you could also make it a positive experience. I mean, I've once had canned emails which are designed uh, basically, thank you for your application, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get back to you in two weeks. By the way, if you want to to know more about our company, here's a video to this, and here are some things about our company culture, et cetera, et cetera. So it's all about how are you using it? You know, what are you supplying? What are you adding? How are you adding value to the candidate experience other than, yes, we received it. Yeah, okay, that's the, the absolute basic level. 
so where there is volume like that, what do you think about a concept of, and, and I know some companies do this, and, and I don't know if this is just a very American thing, which is why I'm asking, but what do you think of a process that's really honest and says, we know we're probably going to get a fair amount of people apply for this job. We may not be able to contact everyone. We do think, you know, your application is important to us. And, you know, here's a discount code for our product. Here's a coffee on us is or something or the other so, so there's some there's some kind of relationship building element to that is that something that culturally works outside of the US I mean I've seen it here what do you think and do you think it works elsewhere I think that can be effective I really appreciate like honesty in those emails like I do think there is a opportunity there as you said boss to really set expectations my favorite version of that email was from a company that I got a number of years ago. And it said, we have a very small recruiting team. So we promise we'll get back to you, but it could take a couple of weeks because we do hand read every application. But that at least set my expectation. And they eventually did get back to me. That is a really good opportunity to set ex- candidate expectations. But in the case of uh, Skipple, where we're kind of talking about, they were able to do the phone call, which is really amazing. And I think was one of the things that led to their success. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I think everybody's able to do it. It's just about where are you allocating resources. And many companies that I at least know allocate resources at many, many meetings and not at directing it to the candidate. To your point, Kel, I haven't ever seen a company say, here's a discount code or et cetera from the application. I have seen it at rejection, which is, by the way, also an American case where I know it from. Um, What I have seen at some point were our legal firms who actually said, if you don't hear back from us within three weeks, consider yourself rejected, which I was like, that's the most candidate unfriendly crap I've ever seen. But at least they were honest. Yeah, and there is, I mean, there's some, I know we need to get back to Skipple, but there is something I think, and I'll try and dig it out and put it in the show notes. There is a case study that I saw, it was a few years ago now, there was an impact on brand and purchasing from a person that had a bad employment experience. So they would stop buying this brand and buy another brand. You know, Budweiser has been at the forefront of that recently, right? And so if you then amplify that, if you're hiring 10,000 people a year, and to do that, you're meeting with, 50,000 people a year and rejecting, you know, 40,000 of them, that's a lot of people that are switching product, right? So there is something about really investing in that experience that people, they separate that from, or they still get a warmer, fuzzy brand feeling and don't want to change as a result of their experience. Yeah. And I think I remember very early days, uh, Starbucks sent at least every rejected applicant. So not in the you've applied, but in we're not going to continue with you. They send them a coupon for a free cup of coffee at Starbucks. And interestingly enough, they managed to make rejecting candidates a profitable business because everybody would buy like a piece of cake or bring somebody else to it and spend more than the cost of that one cup of coffee at Starbucks. So they actually managed to make it a profitable business to reject candidates while improving the candidate experience. Now, that's something you might want to think about. I mean, and this is well fabulous information to get from a podcast. Not only we show people how to improve their candidate experience on the, during the hiring process, we've showed them how to increase their bottom line while doing so. That is genius. So back to the shiphole case. The other thing, because as Marlies, uh, you already pointed out, one massive part of 
why they won and why they managed to hire 857 security guards or hires. It wasn't just security guards uh, while only targeting 850. So they actually managed to overshoot their targets. The other thing is uh, what I love about what they're doing and they're doing this with a really smart advertising agency, basically, is their advertising strategy because they genuinely build personas. I think they have about eight of them for, for specific jobs and they advertise the benefits most relevant to that specific group of people. So it turns out that young men in their 30s do it because it pays quite well for that age or in their 20s, actually. It turns out that women in their 30s who have kids do it because the schedules are known way up front. So you can actually plan childcare while in, for example, healthcare, you only get your schedule a week ahead of time and you're always struggling to get grandma to take care of your children and pick them up from school at the days you all of a sudden have a shift. So they actually, they advertise and they mainly use Facebook and Instagram um, and they advertise with the benefits and also the photos of people that fit the target audience. And they found out there are about eight massive audiences of people who love working as a security guard, for example, at Chippel, but they do it for different reasons. And they they really put their advertising to work for them instead of having the, yeah, this is our job description and this is all that goes. And what I love about the second part of this advertising thing is it's not just the ad which features a 30-year-old woman or a man of Muslim heritage. It's also the landing page and they basically, they also have eight different job ads in there, which are also visually attractive for the people they're trying to attract with the visual attractive advertisements. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I love using personas and recruiting, but I don't think a lot of people use them very actively. So how can a company or a recruiter without that type of budget use personas, do we think? I mean, I could jump in with, you know, one thing that we found from a uh, social media advertising perspective, if you like, and that is that, is that, you know, when you advertise on Facebook or Meta uh, and it's an employment ad, obviously you don't have any of the targeting options that you get for product placements, for example, and for all the reasons that, you know, we've discussed on the show before. One of the things that we've seen is that to Baz's point earlier is that the image often drives the algorithm to show people that click on similar images. So you want to diversify your images before you make your posting, because although you can't target, you can encourage the image or you can encourage the algorithms to show to a diverse group of people based on the imagery you choose in your ad, ad content. So I can see the point about Skipple and they've obviously used that quite cleverly, um, but that's certainly uh, something that we've seen and experienced here. Yeah, the, the thing I, uh, what I've known, but you're a bigger expert on this than I am, Cal, is that um, you don't want to make one campaign with all different ads in there because it always focuses on the best performing ad, the best performing visual. So you make several different campaigns around your personas. So basically you are targeting women or certain minorities or people with certain ages. You just don't use the official targeting methods, but because you are running like six or seven actual parallel campaigns, it will optimize for that specific group instead of eventually saying, well, there are just more men responding than women. So Facebook will only serve out the, the male persona ads. 
I think that they've flattened out the algorithm a lot recently because I say we get a fairly broad spectrum of people applying through those platforms. Um, now, you know, there are certain job types that are historically more male or female dominated. I mean, that's just a fact of the working world as we see it at the moment. So that obviously plays into some of that. But we've definitely seen that flatten out more over the last couple of years, for sure. Yeah, but it's it's more if you, even though... I mean, most security guards at Chiphole are male as well, but you can still target females by simply having a campaign with female photos and the reasons females love the job and running that separately for the males so you don't get more male applicants. Also, by the way, if you're looking at interesting targeting things, which I know, I don't know if they've used them in this campaign, but I remember from this ad agency actually a couple of years telling me like, well, we can't target ethnicity, but... In general, if somebody in living near Amsterdam has a Facebook like for the page of Fenerbahce or Galatasaray, we're pretty sure they have Turkish heritage in them. So those are the people we want to target, you know? So they used secondary targeting mechanisms in order to be able to target certain minority groups, which they really wanted to specifically target and say, listen, you guys are welcome here as well. Because apparently the background checks, they were afraid they would never pass, even though there's no reason they wouldn't pass. But it was it's interestingly enough, this was an applicant bias, as in the applicant was biased against being selected out anyway. Anyway, so they weren't applying until they were specifically shown in photos. We are looking for people with different heritages. Yeah, and I think that's such an interesting like approach to targeting more diverse applicants as well. I think there's learnings there too. How using different images, different campaigns can really allow you to diversify the pool because typically things like airports or semi-government entities, they have a lot of different types of people coming through. So they want to see different types of people working there. So I think there's a lesson not only in, you know, when you're trying to do a mass recruitment campaign, but also when you're trying to diversify your applicant pool. Yeah, definitely. The thing I know, because they, they actually did a similar campaign a couple of years ago, and they told me we managed to increase the number of languages spoken to about 70 or 80, uh, which is really good having security guards speaking every language on Chipple because your clients speak every language and not all of them speak English as well as you'd hope. So that was actually a really big benefit. And what, what do you think lessons we can derive from this for mere mortals, right? I mean, if you've got 800 security guard roles, a, a lot of the time when we are recruiting or we're running a small campaign or you're trying to fill a job, you don't have the luxury of going into behavioral studies, secondary targeting, building video, building campaigns. But are there any lessons for mere mortals that could be applied to more general recruitment for a smaller volume of people? Well, to be honest, one of the things which is also amazing in this specific case is that they now have a fixed number of people applying. They, they've been able to, to basically tweak it to have a steady supply of candidates. Now, in their case, that steady supply is pretty decently high because it's a massive airport. But I've seen this same technology being used for a company which was recruiting, if I'm not mistaken, 20 electrical engineers a year. But they basically, then, what he said is, listen, I need five or 10 every quarter in electrical engineers, but I'm not going to do a campaign, you know, when I need them. I'm going to have a continuous campaign so I can optimize it, so I can tweak it, so I can learn from it, so I can use personas, so have budgets. And I actually think we need, in many cases, 
let's be very honest. Sometimes you're just looking for a one-off job, like, I don't know, a CFO. I'm hoping you don't need to recruit those every couple of, you know, every year even. But if I'm looking at healthcare or Malise at Pinterest, if I'm looking at developers, you probably still want to hire an X amount of developers every year anyway. So why are you still doing a short-term campaign or short-term sourcing when a position opens and not make it a continuous hiring effort? And actually, I think that's what the case from Shiphole shows me as well. Doing it continuously is just much better. I think that's one possible lesson. I think another one is, although maybe you can't use personas in ad targeting, you can use personas when you're creating your sourcing message. And really think about the type of like candidate you're trying to target and who who you're looking for and what your company needs. And if you've done some work on your employer brand, like the ideal type of employee for your company and the types of people that succeed there. So I think you can take some of those lessons from employer branding efforts or even maybe really in-depth job intake sessions to kind of use things to craft whether it's advertising or messaging that will most appeal to the target person you're looking for. Kel, some final words. I was actually thinking of a question more than final words, to be honest, which is if you're applying for a job and we talk about not everyone, you know, we talk about respect. We talk about not everyone getting contacted by the company and we've discussed all the reasons why. Would you rather find out whether you're included for the next round of interviews or not at the point of applying? Like, wouldn't it be good to just have that almost like interaction on the job board and then kind of know, right, yeah, we, this is perfect. We're going to bring you in for an interview, expect a phone call or an email to kind of bring you in. Would you rather find that out then or do you prefer the opportunity to have a conversation? Sorry, I'm still on the subject matter. I know you're looking for final words, but I was, I, was still, uh, I was still in the middle of the subject. I myself would like to know upfront, and I actually know one company who does this, but that's a different story. I might share that in a minute, I'm really curious because I'm seeing Marlies think about this, the answer to this question. What do you want, Marlies? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it depends. If I'm wildly unqualified, I'd rather know right away. If I have a chance, maybe I want to find out after a conversation because there's a possibility that there's something in my profile that you can't see until you speak to me. So I would say if there's no chance, let me know right away. <laughs> But if I could be a viable candidate, and that's where I think a lot of this falls down for the people who are in the middle, I think the wildly qualified and the wildly unqualified, they're more clear cut. It's the people in the middle that are always the trickiest, I find. And that's probably a great way to wrap up because that means that we still have to keep people in the process and we're not all going to be replaced with AI. I love that. What a great way to finish. All right. So on that note, I'll thank you all for listening. If you like our podcast, give us a rating. And if you have feedback for us, please let us know. And we'll be back next week.